You're listening to 50 Plus a Tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded whores. Hey, tippers. Welcome back to 50 Plus a Tip. I'm your host, Danica. I'm Riley. And today we are joined by Akira. Akira is a 28-year-old lesbian-identifying sex worker of British and Filipina heritage. She got her start in sex work 11 years ago in the height of the era of personal Craigslist ad with her ex-girlfriend. Akira is also seven years clean from heroin and recently thoughtfully re-entered sex work as a drug-abstaining individual. There is a bit of a trigger warning for this episode um, with regards to drugs and potentially survival sex work being a trigger as well. So we definitely want you guys to kind of heed that warning. If you're not ready to listen to that, uh, you can take a beat or catch us up with our next episode, but we definitely encourage you to check out this one because we had a blast talking to Akira and she's definitely a voice you guys need to hear. Hello. Okay. So you naturally made it weird. <laughs> so how, welcome. First off, Akira, we're super excited to have you on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Is everyone just super excited? Super excited. <laughs> so, how did you originally get into sex work, and how old were you when you first started? So, I was, I hate to say this, but I was 17 when I first started. A child. I was a child. I definitely should not have been doing what I was doing, but I did it anyways, and, um... The way that I got into it was I was dating a girl and she had told me that she told me two things on our first date. First thing she told me was that she was a heroin addict. And the second thing she told me was that she was an escort. And I, in that moment, realized that I was going to be a heroin addict and an escort. That's how I got into it. Literally just by dating a girl who did it. Um, I feel like they're still listening being like trafficking. (laughs) (laughs) Probably 100%, but we will unpack that. Yeah, totally. Um, Because I think that is something that we probably will need to address that, you know, um, people's minds will unfortunately go there. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you say you, like, she obviously knew that she was an addict, you knew that you were also going to be an addict. Like, what was that process like for you? Like, was that not a red flag or like, you know? Oh, I didn't see red flags. I just saw like fireworks and like bright and shiny things. I was like, get me in there. I want to try this. Um, So yeah, like when I met her, I fell really, really hard because I was young. I was 17. I was like, Mm -hmm. you're cool. You, you do dangerous things. I want to do that too. Um, Was she the same age as you? She was two years older than me. So I was 17. She was 19. Um, and I was obviously like using drugs before Mm -hmm. I met her, but never using like class A drugs, like heroin or crack or cocaine or meth or anything like that. But, um, I was just very, very curious in what that was all about and the lifestyle that it involved it. Um, so yeah, I got super excited about instead of scared. It's like that meme where it's like, those are red flags. I thought, I thought they were like carnival signs. Like, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Literally. You're like, heroin and sex come at me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. <laughs> 100%. Um, and when you say escort, you're talking about full service sex Full work. service, mm-hmm. like, like back in the day, writing up Craigslist ads. Like, mm-hmm. we would um, post in the personal services, and it'd be like, W4... M, like W, the letter W, the number four, M, 
Woman, Woman for, for man. man. And then we'll write up like a thing that's like, Canucks are playing tonight. You want to get your multiple shots on goal? You want to be like Trevor oh, Linden? And like, I mean, witty. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, we would write really funny ads like that. Um, and a lot of the, what, what that really looked like was just like posting over and over and over again because the way that Craigslist works is that every time there's a new post, your post goes down. Um, so, literally just like trying to bang out as many calls that's what we called it getting mm-hmm. calls um and uh bang out banging out, <laughs> out. Bang out i see everybody yeah. yeah um the good old days when you, yeah you guys worked exclusively together or would you so we did solo to? and duos so a lot of times it would be like car dates mm-hmm. or like in call or out call um either together or separately and Pretty much we just like go and try and do like at least 10, 10 calls in a day to make a bunch of money and just use a bunch of drugs. How the whole often day. were you doing that? Sometimes like three calls in an hour. Because literally banging them out. Like literally yeah. banging them out because it would be like 15 minutes. It's mm-hmm. not like like the the sex work that I do now where it's like longer periods of time. It would be like a 15 minute call, like a car BJ. <laughs> And mm-hmm. stuff like that and just like go meet up with them and then message the next person, go meet up with them and just like do that over and over and over again every single day. Were you, would you like, you saying, you know, sometimes you do 10 calls in a day. Would you do that to get a bunch of money and then like not do it for a period of time? Or was this like a constant? It was constant. It yeah. was every single day. So when, um, When I first started using drugs and started escorting, I was living in Abbotsford. So I would drive... Well, that explains it all. (laughs) (laughs) You need drugs to get through it all. (laughs) I would, um... um, So, yeah, I would literally, like, get ready for the day at probably, like, 11.30 a.m. Because that was early morning to me back then. Um, Get ready, drive out to Vancouver, post a bunch of ads... And then just try to get as many people booked for the day as, like, as many bookings as possible for the Mm -hmm. day. Um, And just, like, try and make as much money to really just sustain ourselves with our addiction. Were you working in other avenues besides full-service sex work? No, it was strictly just, like, car dates and in-calls and out-calls. It was only, like... Only full service. Right. And by car dates, you don't mean, like, drive-in movies. No, no, not at all. It'd be like, we would meet up with somebody, they would tell me the make model of their car, and then I would go stand and wait for them to pull up, and then jump in their car. We would find a private spot, Mm -hmm. and then park, and then do the service. Yeah. In the car. (laughs) Make love. Um, Were you ever worried about, like, cops? I was just about to ask that. Yeah, so, um, I mean... I was an addict. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I really, really didn't care. I was like, at the end of the day, if I got arrested, it would be better than what I was, like how I was living, like going right. to jail and like, I would actually potentially get resources to get better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and go to treatment or something like that. So I honestly like all, all thinking of like, is this dangerous? Am I going to get in trouble? Like it goes out the window when you're an addict mm-hmm. and you just don't care. Right. Yeah. How long were you um, doing that? Well, I guess how long were you an addict for and how long were you escorting for? So I was 
I was an addict for as long as I was escorting, so four and a half years. Um, So I started when I was 17 and then got out when I was like 21 or 22. I can't remember the exact age. What is age? Who knows? Yeah, it's like three or four Mm -hmm. years or so. Yeah. So those things were like very much hand in hand. Yeah, totally, Mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. Uh, So you found your clients on Craigslist. And heirs list. OG Leo's list. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what was the protocol or the process of finding clients through there? Was there any kind of screening process or was it still like the mentality of like, a guy will pay? Well, <laughs> he will do. <laughs> so it would be like we would write our ads, post them, and then wait for people to email us or text us back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would spend at least like 15, 20 minutes chatting to them to see like what they were about to like see if they were sus or like trustworthy enough to go um usually because we were addicts and we were willing to take any form of money whether there was danger or if it was safe um we would just like message we I had a a crew of girls that I worked with and we would if it was like a car date, for example, we would text the make and model of the car, the license plate, where we were going, how long the date was going to be. And if we didn't respond as soon as the date was over to like call the police and or like call somebody to come find us. Um, but that's really all we really did for safety measures is like letting another person know where we were and what the car looked like or how long it was going to be for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you say almost sheepishly that, like, that wasn't a lot, but I feel like that's a lot more than a lot of people do going on random dates on Tinder, right? And, yeah. like, there's mm-hmm. been Absolutely. numerous people who have been murdered meeting people on Tinder. So um, I think that is, like, um, an intelligent thing to do. Yeah. And I think it's a very necessary thing to do. Totally. Um, especially as, like, female presenting people. 100%. Um, when you're meeting with people, even with people you fucking do know. Yeah. Like, to let a friend know, like, hey, I'm going here. I should be done this time. Yeah. You know. Um, this is what they drive and stuff. Yeah, and working with someone too is obviously like you're a little bit safer. So you, yeah. someone expects you, someone knows what you're doing, where you are. 100%. Uh, to, to probably the make and model of their car. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. Would you consider the nature of the sex work that you did survival sex work? Definitely. Um, I mean, I was an addict and I was using drugs to self-medicate from the pain that I was feeling in my day-to-day life. I mean, very, very traumatized child um and then sex work was funding my addiction and I actually I did the I did the math and I calculated that I had actually spent about half a million dollars on heroin during my first round with sex work and it's just crazy to me that like I was able to make that much money but have absolutely nothing to show for it because I was literally just the money was in one hand out the other in one hand out the other there's literally like I was, like, doing services just to feel high and, Mm -hmm. like, feel something. And, like, it was just, like, a rotation of that every single day. Just, like, wanting to get high and then fuck for money and then get high, fuck for money, get high, fuck for money over and over and over again. And, like, some of the situations that I got in because of it were pretty fucked up. Um, I remember this one time uh, we me and my ex, we got called to do um, a date for this guy and he ended up being a pimp and he wanted us to work for him and he, like, was, like, luring us with, um... 
He's like, I'll give you 50% of the cut that you make from the services, and I'll give you heroin. Like, I'll give you heroin every time you do a service or a call. And um, what he did was there was another girl working with us, and this is the one and only time that we even fucked with this. Mm -hmm. But um, him and his girlfriend were, like, pimps pretty much. They wouldn't call themselves that, but that's what they were. And they got us a room at uh, Motel 2400, on Kingsway, and they hid, like, a gram of heroin in multiple different parts throughout the motel room, and they were like, every time you do a call, we'll tell you where a point is, and a point is, like, one dose of heroin, Um, and me being the ringleader that I am, I was like, hey, let's just, like, not do any calls and find all the heroin in this motel room. So, like, the three of us were just, like, ripping this fucking, like, motel apart looking for the heroin that's, like, stashed around. And then um, me and my ex-girlfriend, we we used all the drugs with the other girl and then ran away from the place and, like, took a picture of their license plate and called Crime Stoppers. <laughs> we called Crime Stoppers... And, like, gave them the license plate and, like, the names of these people and just kind of were, like, these people were trying to traffic us and, like, we're, like, we don't want to tell you our names, but we're worried for other girls who might get caught up in this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're fucking stupid to put, like, addicts in a room with drugs yeah. and not expect <laughs> them to go on a fucking scavenger hunt. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not uh, how you do it. No, <laughs> no not at all. Um, but something that I did find working like in the Craigslist era is that, um, when, when you are like a cheaper on like the scale of sex workers, if you, if your rates are quite low, you get some of the freakiest fucking people. Like I have some crazy stories. Like, um, I had this one client named Spitz. Course, <laughs> <Classic>. <laughs> and um, we called him Spitz because he was really into. Uh, Let me, me guess, being spat on. Being spat on, <laughs> but here's the kicker: we would go to his house, me and my ex, and we would put like drape sheets all over his couch, and he would get fully naked, sit on his couch. He would give us both a cup, and we would pee in the cup, and then puke in the cup, and then spit it at him. All over the place. Or, like, throw shit at him. And, like, he fucking got off to it. Like, he really fucking liked the feeling of urine just, like, pouring all over his body and, like, being humiliated at the same time. Wait, I'm sorry. I have to backtrack. Yeah. So Uh, you're going to go the same place I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) You peed into the cup and puked into the cup. Same time. Yes. And then you put it in your mouth. Yes. And spat it at him. Yes. Yes. Cool. No, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm all for... Yeah. 80%. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, now, like, now with, like, the sex work that I do, I'm like, how the fuck did I let myself do that? I mean, I feel like, you know, the peeing, the shitting, you know... The puking. The, the puking. Cool. Like, pretty common. I have other stories about shitting. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I can, I can be on board. Like, that's cool. Um, I don't know if I could do it because I do have a little bit of like, um, uh, what's Germophobia? 
Um, not yes, but um, like performance anxiety. No. <laughs> to like shit and pee in front of someone. But um, I think I draw a line with putting my own mouth. Like this is a you thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I was an I was addict. Like, if I had heroin, I of, of course. Like, like money is money. Yeah, 100%. Like, the things that I did, I, I, I'm i not proud of, but I did it because it got me to where I needed to be, which was a th- high. A thousand percent. 100%. <laughs> and, like, you know, I always say, like, not all money is good money, but that's, like, a privileged thing to think. And, totally. And, and be able to say that and feel that, right? Yeah. Um, me and Riley talk about all the time how we really are privileged sex workers, and, like, our experience in sex work is vastly different from people who are not in that privileged place. Totally. And it's really interesting for me to be in a place where, like, the, the method of sex work that I'm doing now is so fucking different than where I started mm-hmm. and just like the contrast is huge it's it's insane yeah no 100% we're gonna get into like your second stint of sex work in a second but you mentioned that you kind of started with drugs because of the girlfriend you had yeah. at the time and, and the company you were keeping um when or how did you notice that it was becoming a problem what made you think that okay I'm this is an addiction this is an issue mm, so <laughs> <laughs> I remember like every young person who does drugs they they we I mean Okay, I don't want to speak for every young person. For me, I thought that I was absolutely invincible and nothing could touch me. Mm. I was like, I can do drugs. I can pick it up and put it down. No problem. I, I don't have a problem with any any of this at mm. all. And then it was like two months later and I was like, oh, fuck. Mm. I, I'm getting dope sick now. Like, I, I literally need this stuff. Um, do you want to explain dope sick to people that don't understand what that is? Yeah, totally. So dope sick or like withdrawals. Is what I think that's what the textbook yeah word Lame for it is yeah, yeah. Um, is when your your body no longer has opiates in it and you in, you get to a point where your body is physically addicted to the drug that you um, you absolutely need it to function like a normal human being like it's just like breathing mm. um, so what dope sick is is like you start it, it's kind of like a flu and usually it kicks in. Depending on how bad your habit is, it can be anywhere from like six hours after using or 12 hours after using. Um, And it's just like you're sweating, you're shaking, you're puking, you're shitting. um, You're just desperate to feel normal again. Mm. Yeah. So I guess like when you, I'm assuming that when you start doing these like class A drugs, the high starts to wear off as you do it more and more. Totally. Like, is that it's, true? Or? Yeah, it is true. And it's also, like, about the quality of the drugs that you're mm-hmm. using. Um, one of the reasons why I would actually work in Vancouver is because the quality of the drugs in Vancouver were so much better than in Abbotsford. So if I was working in Abbotsford, I would go into withdrawals after like six hours. Right. If I was working in Vancouver, I would go into withdrawals after 12 hours because Mm. it was way more, it was a lot stronger out here because the further Mm. into like the country you get, the more it gets stomped on. Mm -hmm. Um, Stomped on means getting cut with like other, other things like Tylenol or, uh, one time I found wood chips oh. in my oh, heroin. Oh, my God. You're like, I blew for this. I blew a guy for this. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I suck dick for. <laughs> that back. The wood is in the wrong place. <laughs> wood in my mouth, wood in my heroin. <laughs> 
So obviously, like we mentioned, you are clean now. And yeah. Congratulations. That's yeah. fucking awesome. Thank you very much. Um, I know as your friends, we're super proud of you. Aww. Um, what was the recovery like? How did you eventually stop using drugs? So, um, how I stopped was I had to break up with my ex-girlfriend and that was that's like a whole other story she actually ended up falling in love with a trick and had a baby with him and like cheated on me with him and stuff like that like a hallmark movie yeah absolutely (laughs) um fuck i wish i could come up with like a name for that movie like right away but i can't um (laughs) um but yeah we broke up heroin and hotties Something like trick and baby and yeah. I don't know. No, you can't have the fucking like twist of the movie in uh, the fucking yes, title. True. Trick and we never had a baby together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to your story. Um, yeah. Back to my story. So um before we actually broke up, I had decided for myself that I was gonna stop using because I had gotten evicted from a basement suite that I was living in and that was kind of like a rock bottom moment and me and my ex had to move into my parents' house. I literally called my parents the day that I got evicted. I was like, mom, dad, I'm moving home. And then she came to live with us. And I like the moment that I moved back in with my parents, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop using. And she lived with me there for about three months. And for those three months, I wasn't using. And I was literally just watching her use every single day. So I would actually go with her to pick up the drugs um, so she could get prepared to go do a call and, like, do a date. So um, I would go with her to pick up the drugs, watch her use the drugs in front of me. And um, after a while, I just kind of saw what it was doing to her because I had stopped working at this time and I had stopped using drugs. And I was just watching her go through the motions of it and what it actually looked like to see an addict for what they were mm. and like know what the person like know what the person was like when they were sober and then what they were like when they were using and it like I was able to kind of just take a step back and really see what I was doing to myself mm. and um I like a like a few months into her living with me and my parents she started to like text this guy at mm. nighttime while I would be pretending to be asleep and then one day she was like I have something to tell you and in my head I was like you're cheating on me you're cheating on me you're cheating on me please be cheating on me please give me a reason to break up with you (laughs) because when you use drugs with somebody and you escort with somebody like you're so like trauma bonded and Mm -hmm. so entrenched that like it's hard to pull away and like give like a valid reason to break off this connection Mm -hmm. um so it was like perfect timing for me to be like okay peace i'm gonna i'm gonna work on me now um i just want to say i think that's like incredible that you could still be around that mm -hmm. and not use like i think that i mean i i've never suffered like suffered with addiction but I could just imagine how incredibly difficult that was so Mm. I just yeah I want to give ode to like that strength thank you so much I really appreciate that um yeah like Keith what did she have to tell you (laughs) 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 ma'am 
been waiting. <laughs> um, what she had to tell me was that she had been cheating on me and that she fell in love with the trick and that she was moving in with him. So I got my own room again. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, but... Yeah, like, after that, she moved out, and then we didn't really talk to each other at all. Like, we completely severed the connection, um, and then I went on with my life. I, I uh, re-entered the world of straight jobs, which was painful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I remember applying for my first job that was a normal job and seeing $17 an hour and laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is this what people actually get paid? Yeah. And seventeen dollars an hour back in like decent. in yeah. twenty fourteen, that was a good wage. Yeah, fuck that. I know it's wild. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Uh, do you have any other advice for people who might be suffering with addiction? Totally. Um, I think for me, the hardest thing was reaching out to people, and I know that in the, my darkest moments, the heaviest thing in the world was the phone. Uh, but like having one person to reach out to, or like challenging yourself to even just like message somebody and see if they want to like hang out or talk to you like the number one thing that can counteract addiction and isolation is connection so making sure that you have a support network um whether it's one or two people that you know or like even just like I don't know like creating a community for yourself in a place that you've never thought you could like I don't know like for me I I started doing art again and reaching out to like an art therapist and building a community that was creative really really helped me um, keep my head on straight and stay clean. Do you have any advice for people who have a friend or a family member or anything like that suffering with addiction like what can outsiders do to help? Totally I think it's so it's so 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 difficult to watch somebody going through something so painful because they they are obviously in pain and they're obviously hurting you as well because you care about them but Mm -hmm. making sure that you're taking care of yourself and putting yourself in a place where you have the space to show up for them um can really really help not just you but also the person who's suffering at the same time just to know that they have you um because for me the biggest fear that I had was being like left behind or like forgotten about or being like feeling like nobody cared Mm -hmm. so having people reach out to me and just still being there without judgment was the best thing for me and that's just me personally every person's going to be different right but just the fact that you're showing up and making sure that they're not feeling isolated is the best thing you can do Mm -hmm. what did the exit from sex work look like for you well it was it was quite abrupt, really, because I, I mean, when I moved into my parents' house, they wouldn't have been okay with me, like, sneaking out at weird hours of the night to go do calls and stuff. So as soon as I moved in with them, I just completely stopped. Mm-hmm. What was it like? I get, because you said that your ex was still using mm-hmm. while you were living with your parents yeah did they know like what was kind of the uh, dynamic there so um my parents knew that both my ex and I were heroin addicts um they my parents still have no idea that I ever worked in sex work or Mm -hmm. am working in sex work um but they knew that she was still using when we all lived there and 
there was so much tension in the household because she would obviously be very high in front of my parents. So, like, she'd go up to our room in the news and, like, come downstairs and be, like, nodding off in front of them and just, like, literally spaced out looking at the wall, just, like, drooling. Um, And she was still working. Like, I I was trying to be a good kid Uh and, like listen to the rules that they had in place because I needed to have a little bit of structure to stay clean. Um, So she would use in our room and then go out and do a call at like 2 a.m. And then come, I would like sneak downstairs and unlock the door and let her inside. And um, that was just kind of our song and dance for about two, three months. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually it just got like, Like, I couldn't handle the stress of my parents being pissed off about her going in and out and, like, having to come up with excuses for her as to why she's leaving at weird hours and coming back at, like, 15 minutes later, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been so stressful, like, because what do you do, like, at that point? You can't turn your back on somebody, but also it's such an awkward position for yourself to be in. Totally. Yeah, 100%. I would feel very, like... I think trauma bonding, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, um, is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And um, I... Yeah, I could feel like an... I could imagine that you'd feel like an obligation to be there for her, but then also, like, you want to show your parents respect because they're the ones housing you, and, like... And you're trying to even show yourself respect by, like, doing what what you're trying to do. It's not using again, and et cetera. Yeah. You're back in sex right now. Yes, I am. <laughs> Here we are. Bitches are back. <laughs> they always come back. <laughs> so what avenues of sex work do you work in now? Um, I pretty much just do PR work now. Um, do you need me to explain what that is? Yeah, so it's just private parties. Yeah, private parties, lap dances, and whatever else is requested stripping and whoring yes (laughs) so what made you want to re-enter sex work i know in the intro we made made comments saying that it was um like a voluntary decision Mm -hmm. this time around so what made you want to come back into it and um how has it been for you well for me like obviously earlier when we were talking about my first round with sex work it was very trafficy Mm-hmm. Trafficy, very, very trafficy. Um, and um, me re-entering is honestly just me reclaiming myself and um, gaining empowerment from something that took, in my opinion, took a lot from me when I was young and too naive to understand what was what I was doing. Um, now I'm really just like using it to fund my passions and Mm -hmm. the things that I want to do for my life like I have a career now and obviously with the pandemic a lot of people's jobs have gotten quite difficult finances have gotten tight um and me re-entering sex work is really just giving me the opportunity to be committed to what I want to do for my future and give my all to it how did you know that you were ready to return to the industry um, I mean, I over the course of the seven years that I hadn't been doing sex work, I did a lot of internal work. So I went to counseling school, and um, the school that I went to was an experiential learning school. So it was pretty much like eight hours, four days a week of group therapy. 
And I worked through a lot of the trauma that I went through during my first round of sex work. Um, and then meeting my current partner, uh, it just kind of opened everything up to me and like gave me the idea of like, whoa, I could actually do this again, but in a very healthy way, in a way that is empowering and um, is actually useful to my future instead of just feeding an addiction. So instead of just like all of my money going to drugs, I, now my money goes to buying new tools for my, the career that I want to do for the rest of my life. It mm-hmm. goes to helping my parents pay their bills and supporting like vulnerable communities around me. Like I, I, I have a lot to offer the world now that I'm in sex work in a healthy way. Like I can actually funnel my funds into avenues that, not only benefit me and my future, but the people around me. I think um, one of the reasons why we were so excited to have you on was because you are a testament to how much sex work can be vastly different. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. how how like there really are no parallels between when you were doing survival sex work and now that you are like a um, fully functioning adult making a conscious decision to go into it and doing it in a healthy way and seeing healthy outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think the comment about when we first started about how sex work didn't lead you into a heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. um, I think people get that confused a lot as well too. That's like, Oh, well she must've been a hair. If people had just read your bio, I think they would be like, Oh, well of course she's a heroin actually She's a sex worker. It's like, well that's not the Mm -hmm. way it worked. um, So I think those are two like huge takeaways from, from having you on, which I just want to, throw in there but you you also the way you're working now is different in the sense of how you're finding clientele and how you're um going about work you know you're working more so for not really the term we could use but let's say at agencies with a pr Mm -hmm. with the pr companies do you prefer doing it that way as opposed to um like finding clients for yourself Mm, i think that there are Benefits and co- and cons to everything. Benefits and cocks. I honestly, <laughs> I actually almost said that. Um, there's benefits and cons to everything in life, and um, the benefits to finding your own clients is that they are your own clients. Mm-hmm. Like they are regulars of yours that you don't have to pay out for. They they reach out to you. You can reach out to them anytime. Um, whereas like the 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 cons to that is that you don't always there isn't really a screening process when you're meeting them for the first time you're kind mm-hmm. of going into it blind whereas with um agencies as we are calling it on this podcast today um, <laughs> it's it is a in my opinion it is much safer than just like going in blind like mm. Um, there are other girls typically there with you and a lot of times other girls have worked with the people that we're going to the party for and stuff like that. So being a flaming homosexual. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How, so I guess it's so funny because like we talk about gay for pay. Gay for pay. What is it like being straight for pay? (laughs) (laughs) What's Um, what's straight for? There's something there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We got a movie to think about and we got this to think about. Um, straight for pay. Um, I don't know. I like the way that I think about it cuz like I've worked a lot of straight jobs in like the 7 years that I wasn't doing sex work. And for me like straight jobs. Straight. Straight <laughs> jobs. Um yeah. it's like I don't know, like do 
doing a service is like the equivalent of like me being in an office writing a very strongly worded email. It's just a task that I have mm-hmm. to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And it's very much just a part of the job. Like, I don't really feel, like, turned on while doing it. <laughs> yeah. I'm a very good actor. I'm very good at it. I mean, I'm literally paid to pretend like this man or the multiple men are, like, my be-all, end-all. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's not that hard for me. And I think it really came from, like, my first round of sex work, like, being strictly only full service, like, learning how to do the hard work first. Hard. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, having that experience and then going into PR has, like, it really bridged it really easily for me. Um, Like, it's, I don't even have to think about it. So it's probably safe to say that you're, like, not a gold star lesbian. I'm definitely not a gold star lesbian. <laughs> Even before I did sex work, I, uh, I dated men. I thought okay. I was a flaming bisexual at one point. <laughs> flaming homosexual. <laughs> um, I think it would also... A good takeaway from that, too, is because we recently had someone in our messages saying, you know, I started stripping and... Um, I, I believe they are heterosexual mm. and their male partner is having a hard time with them stripping and the intimacy between them and a man. And I think it'd be a really good point to point out saying, you know, if this like lesbian <laughs> can, can do it and she has, you know, um, I believe you have no real interest in men. No. If you can do that, then they need to understand that like, you know, straight women can also turn that off in their head where yeah. it's just a task, totally. like you said. It's right? literally like... Grabbing a cup of coffee for your boss before you go to the office. And then putting it up and picking it up. (laughs) (laughs) Just gently caressing the cup. (laughs) Blowing onto it. Yeah, cooling it down very nicely to a drinkable temperature. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. So we've talked on the podcast about how drugs are kind of in the realm of or in the environment of sex work yeah um just you know like PR the drugs pilot. are flowing okay yes. drug, yeah <laughs> fuck yeah Dr- there's drugs everywhere literal mountains everywhere. of cocaine cocaine <laughs> cocaine um but how is that like how is working around people doing drugs like i know that when i've worked uh pr parties as well you know a lot of times guys either like it when you do drugs or try and like not push you well push you to do drugs or like you know um want you to be a part of that situation like how do you navigate that and like we've said too like being someone who does drugs is a selling feature yeah Mm -hmm. like when guys know that i'm sober or that i like i don't drink at work like i'm pretty much bank on not getting hired for that right like yeah so yeah how's as a recovering addict how is that being in an environment where not only are drugs readily accessible but they're almost encouraged in a Mm -hmm. sense yeah um i mean i kind of go into it being like super coy and i'm like oh my god babe i've never done that before it's my first time i like i'm actually really scared like like what does it do like like what what does it make me feel like and i like 
go in pretending like I know absolutely fucking nothing. You're about tatted drugs. from hip to toe. I know. I'm like speaking that. like I'm like some like pristine like doll like person, but I'm <laughs> my body's my temple. I literally, <laughs> I'm literally like covered in tattoos from yeah. like head to toe. My feet say butt slut on them. <laughs> um, but like, it honestly depends on the gig, really. Yeah. Like. For gigs where, like, guys are super fucked up and they're, like, offering me key bumps, I'll just, like, blow out. Mm. Blow it off the key. (laughs) Um, But, like, that's only really if, like, I can get away with that kind of thing. Usually, I'll just be like, I don't do that. Mm. I'll drink. Do you have a drink for me, babe? Like, I'll drink. I'm sorry, I'm just, like, picturing someone, like, holding up a key to you and you're, like, blowing it out. out. I mean, over, then there's like a white powder all over the face. They're like, what the fuck? Sometimes it's graceful, sometimes it's not so graceful. Um, you're like fumbling. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Um, Whoops. But, but you made a comment there about having a drink. So, like, as a recovered addict, you don't yeah. do drugs, but you do have So, liquor. yeah, my definition of sobriety or clean time or whatever you want to call it is like, I, I don't have the traditional, like, like recovery story I never went to treatment I I still drink I smoke weed I literally just do not do hard drugs mm-hmm. um and even like with drinking and smoking weed I will pick it up and put it down if I'm noticing that I'm getting to a point where it's becoming a problem mm-hmm. like I will step away for months at a time mm-hmm. um I mean last year I quit drinking for the entire year um so yeah it's it's really, like, I'm just... I work really hard to be in check with myself and, like, know where I'm at with substance use and if mm-hmm. it's, like, a dangerous place for me to be using or drinking, I mean, not using... I don't use drugs. <laughs> Seven years clean here. Um, yeah, it's just really checking in with myself and where I'm at. Like, I've had days where I've been booked for something and I'm not in a good place mentally and I just have to cancel because I know if I go to that gig, I there's a pretty high risk for me to relapse. Yeah, yeah, I really commend you for that. Because yeah. one, being black people are not that self-aware of their, for lack of a better term, like shortcomings or their temptations. Um, but then to also be like, I'm going to forego uh, money to not put myself in that, that mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Good for you. And like, actually that's, you, that's something that um, is, has changed about me in sex work now is that when I first started, I was just like, how much fucking money can I make in mm-hmm. one day? I want to make the most money I can make. And now, like, the perspective that I have is that I go to a gig, I'm up however much money from the base. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's cool. That's more money mm-hmm. than I had if I wasn't going to this gig. Right, yeah. So, like, the dollar amount in, like, I don't have, like, a dollar amount that I'm chasing. Right. It's just, like, I'm here and I'm receiving whatever is coming to me. Yeah. But I'm not going to, like, put myself into dangerous situations that risk my clean time. Right. Yeah. And I think that's also um, a part of being being a more privileged place now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and that's like, that's kind of my definition of privilege. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, yes, there's other, you know, aspects of it being, you know, skinny and white and all these yeah. other things that add on to privilege. But I think at the base level, privilege is the fact that you can turn down money. Yeah. That mm-hmm. you don't absolutely need it to survive. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, which is a privilege that a lot of people don't have. So, in, in, in all areas of work. Like, yeah. there's a lot of people that do work they hate because they can't not get that paycheck coming Totally. In. Um, 
And so, I mean, yeah. even within like my straight jobs, like I left a very good paying job, like a salary job because it was affecting my mental health to the point where like I was actually in a really dangerous place of like potentially relapsing. Mm. Like I left like, like a salary fucking job with medical benefits and all of that stuff mm. because like it just wasn't benefiting me anymore and it was doing more harm than good mm-hmm. and for sex work like it gives me so much more freedom in no like being able to check in with myself and if I'm actually going to be able to go to work today mm-hmm. or if I need to take the day off mm-hmm. and like just be with myself and get myself back to my baseline mm-hmm um, so you just, you know, you're seven years clean and you kind of said you've been, um, close to relapsing. Was that something that you had to like learn to recognize? And like, what was that process like for you to recognize that you could be close to a relapse or did have a relapse or, you know, that sort of thing. And then, and then what are some advice, like what's some advice to people who might be going through the same thing? Totally. Um, well, I've been... It being in recovery every day, you're close to relapsing. Like any day you could like tomorrow I could relapse. I don't fucking know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's like just I've built this like a skill of like being hyper aware of myself and like what environments are safe and what environments aren't safe, what kind of people to be close to and what people to stay away from mm-hmm. um, and just like certain triggers within myself. So people that are like really pushy with drugs like I was at a gig a couple days ago and I this guy was like it's a good time for cocaine I'm like I've never done that before (laughs) obviously I've done fucking Hollywood lines of love um (laughs) in my past obviously um but um like this guy was like well it's a good time to start and yeah. I just made sure to, like, not interact with him yeah, whatsoever. Clear, yeah. I was really lucky. He actually left the gig oh, and perfect. then came back five minutes before I was leaving. So I was like, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. He had a stupid fucking Christmas tie-on, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, for me, it's just, like, being aware of, like, how I'm feeling internally. Like, I, I suffer from anxiety, and I know when my anxiety is really heightened, it's time for me to stop drinking mm-hmm. it's time for me to go into a gig sober um and or even just take the night off really mm-hmm. um and just like knowing that it's okay to not go to work mm-hmm. it's okay to say no to yourself and like i find i get massive fomo especially because like my partner is also a, a sex worker and like if she's in a place where she's like ready to go bang out like a couple gigs in a row and i'm in a bad mindset like, I have to be like, no, Akira, it's okay. You can stay home. Mm-hmm. You can just take the night, relax, and do some, like, self-care tomorrow. There's going to be, there's always going to be fucking gigs. There's always going to be horny men that want <laughs> naked girls to dance on them. Yes, That's are. never going to go away. <laughs> this is the oldest profession in the world. It's not going anywhere. Um, so, like, knowing that there's always tomorrow is a huge thing for me. And I assume, like, those skills didn't come right away. Like, it's like anything, like a muscle. Like, you, it comes more naturally the more you you check in with yourself. And the more you're in those situations yeah. where, like, oh, the kid, this doesn't feel right. I need to leave now. Totally. You probably start to notice it 
sooner and sooner in those hundred percent it's a muscle that you it's like going to the gym like Mm -hmm. you need to work it out like you need to flex that muscle um and it's it's a skill that you need to hone um it doesn't come easy and the easiest thing to do is to just ignore those feelings and just to continue on and hustle through it because of like i don't know like with sex work that there's that grind mentality like if you're not hustling, you're not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you have no energy for yourself, then how are you going to fucking make the most money that you can? Yeah. It's like that like cheesy saying where it's like you can't pour from an empty cup. And exactly. it's, it's very true. It's like, yeah. I always, like people have asked me that question, like, is the cup half empty or half full? And it depends on if you're pouring it or drinking it. Oh, that's a good, oh. I like that. So the last question here before we get into our three rapid fire questions obviously another hard part of sex work is deciding to be out or a hidden sex worker and that's something we've talked to i think uh, talked about at length uh between riley and i and, mm-hmm. and several of our guests and and you and i have had these conversations as well about being hidden and getting outed um so you're currently as you said working you know a straight or a square job well in sex work and you recently got outed yes i did at your work so um, obviously I don't know how much detail you want to go into that, but would you have any advice for people that would go through something similar where their intention wasn't necessarily to be an out sex worker, but that choice was kind of taken from them? Totally. Um, well, I mean, it's for me in the moment when I did get outed, I was so fucking blindsided and it was, it came from somebody that like, I really respected their opinion and I cared what they thought about me and I wanted to be honest with them but I was not in a place where I was ready to and I felt like I got absolutely catfished into sharing information um and obviously speaking with you and other sex workers thank you so much for that by the way like you really were a massive support for me during that time um (laughs) (laughs) um, now it's like you don't you don't owe anybody an answer. You don't have to out yourself. Like, the, like if you want to stay private about that, you don't have to communicate anything you're not comfortable with. Um, for me, where I was coming from and getting outed was like, I, w- I was wanting to be open and let people know what I was doing. I'm not the kind of person that likes to hide. Um, I'm very much an open book with every facet of my life. And I was working on getting to a place where I would be ready to communicate what I was doing, um, in sex work and all that kind of stuff. And just wasn't ready to communicate it then. Um, but yeah, if I could go back in time, I would have just been like, it's none of your business. Mm-hmm. And I full stop. Yeah. Just full <laughs> stop. Like I, I end of conversation. Right. You, you don't, like you don't get to ask me these questions mm-hmm. and romanticize and fetishize what I do when I'm not here in my straight nine to five job. Yeah. And I think that's a, a huge thing is people, um, people don't, you don't owe people, no. you know, explanations for things. You don't owe people answers for things. Like people can ask all the questions they want. And it's really at the end of the day, still your decision if, and how you want to answer that. And I think sometimes when people get outed, they feel like that choice in power is taken from them. Totally. And I think it's really important to acknowledge like the power, you still have that power. Yeah. You don't have to answer those people. You can say that's truly none of your business. Yeah. You know, and like that's full stop. That's, you know, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really up to you how much of yourself you want to share with other people. Yeah. Yeah. It truly sucks when you're like, take it off guard though, because 
you really do look back and you're like, ah, I was not prepared for this. Definitely. And like, and like back to the same like thing of like the muscle, like, and I Mm -hmm. said to you, like your first time you're going to be like, whoa, like, oh, I don't really know what to do right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the next time you'll be a little, little better at it, you know, and next time you'll be a little quicker at what you want to say. And you'll, and like by the 10th time you'll be like, oh, here we fucking go. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's just like anything. You just get better at handling those people. And it's just like, for me, like the reminder of like, it's people projecting their own insecurities about themselves and like. Just, like, assuming they know what sex work is. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot of people. Like, the, the thing that she said after she, like, catfished me out was, like, oh, yeah, and I watched Hustlers. Oh, like, no. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, because I straight up rob men. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Of their dignity, maybe. They're coming. Yeah. Okay, did you? <laughs> I had to. Okay, Akira, before we let you go, we have three rapid fire questions. The first one is What is one thing on your sexual bucket list that you haven't done yet but want to try? Ooh, uh, I don't know. There's so many things. Um, okay, so the reason this is really hard for me is because I've done so much that a lot of sex workers are jealous of. Like, mm. Like the spit story. There's no another. one's jealous of that. No, no you're not jealous <laughs> of that. Jealous <laughs> of that. <laughs> okay, so something that you guys would be jealous of is I one time sold my shit for four hundred dollars for yeah. a man to eat. Oh no, I do love <laughs> it. I love he, it. He literally like <laughs> really went downhill. He, he fucking was like, okay, come to the bathroom with me, and he like put a towel on like the ledge of oh, the bathtub and was like, you're just gonna have to sit on the ledge of the bathtub and you're just gonna poop. And, like, the next time you come over, could you please eat, like, peas or corn we've, or something? We've learned from other guests that people with poo fetishes, or scat fetishes, whatever you want to yeah. call them, are very particular about the consistency of their yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, at the time I was a heroin addict, too, so I was fucking constipated. And, oh, like, no. I took a massive shit, and he was, like, so fucking hyped over the size of this fucking shit. Um, okay, so there was one thing on your sexual bucket list that you do want to try. I do want to try. Um, I think I'd, I want to shit in a guy's mouth. That is fun. I, I want get you paid to report back to us when this is done. a lot of money to shit in a man's mouth. <laughs> what is one thing you've tried sexually that you won't be doing again? Um, get an airtight. What? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what that is? No. <laughs> it's literally a dick in every hole. Oh, at the same time. Yes. And last question. If you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? Uh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say, fuck you, pay me. Short and And sweet. sweet. All right, Akira, where can people find you? Um, people can find me, um, on the mean streets of Van City. (laughs) 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 Or on Instagram at, uh, Akira the Hun. Akira the... Hun. Hun. H-O-N or H-U-N? H-U-N. H- Akira the Hun. A-K-I-R-A. I'm actually gonna fix that for you. It's Akira the T-H-A-H-U-N. <laughs> I'm gonna stop you right there. And <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And Riley, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at underscore Riley Devine. I... I fuck, I don't know. <laughs> Y'all should know by now anyway. <laughs> Y'all, you'll find me. <laughs> and we apologize for the constant dog sounds. I have a very no. cute puppy lingering around us today. So there are some tongue sounds and 
blood claw sounds, but what do we say? It tongues a wagon. Tons of a wagon. <laughs> Akira, thank you so much for joining us and being so open and candid with your journey. We are very, very proud of you as your friends and fellow sex workers for all the choices you're making and just watching you grow even the time we've known you. Thank you very much. It's been yeah. fun. As always, you can find me on Instagram at 50plusatip or email at 50plusatip at gmail.com. Send in your questions, comments, responses to all the tings. We love getting them. Have a wonderful week and happy whoring. Bye.